0: Thanks, guys. So, you know, it is my assignment, my responsibility to like 90% of the Sundays of the year to stand up here, open the Word of God, mesmerize you with fascinating stuff that will keep you just glued to every word that I say, to make sure that I have great illustrations that will illustrate the passages, that I'll have great application points so that everybody will have something to take home. And I've been doing this now about, you know, 50 times a year for the last... 35 years. And uh, when you add all that up, you go, man, it is hard to come up with something new. It is hard to come up with something fresh. So you're dismissed. I got nothing for you. No. So what? Let me. I'm going to pull the curtain back. I'm going to let you guys know how we do this, uh, how preachers do this. Um, we steal from each other. That's what we do. We listen to one another's sermons online. We read books by each other. We, we do all that kind of stuff, and we just steal stuff from each other. And uh, that sort of helps to shape what we're putting together and bring it all together like that. So if, if you're ever like, you're, let's say you go on the Write Down Media app and you're listening to Francis Chan preach, and you hear something that you have heard from me, or... Let's say you're driving down the street, you turn on, like, uh, John MacArthur on the radio and you hear something you've heard from me. Um, you're right. Those guys steal their stuff from me. <laughs> so, uh, now, when, I, when I, I'm always trying to find somebody that I could steal stuff from. So, I have found a theologian that I absolutely love, and there's no point in... Stealing. Uh, I'm going to just give him credit. His name is Arnold Lobel, and he wrote uh, the Frog and Toad series. And uh, if you've been around here very long, you know that uh, he's one of my favorite theologians. All I got to do now is find the page. Okay, I'm going to read to you directly from his story and give him the credit. Uh, this is from Frog and Toad, and it's entitled "The Dream." Toad was asleep. He was having a dream. He was on a stage and he was wearing a costume. Toad looked out into the dark. Frog was sitting in the theater. A strange voice from far away said, Presenting the greatest toad in all the world. Toad took a deep bow and Frog looked smaller as he shouted, Hooray for Toad! Toad will now play the piano very well, said the strange voice. And Toad played the piano and he did not miss a note. Frog, cried Toad, can you play the piano like this? No, said Frog. It seemed to Toad that Frog looked even smaller. Toad will now walk on a high wire and will not fall down, said the voice. And Toad walked on the high wire. Frog, cried Toad, can you do tricks like this? No, peeped Frog, who looked very, very small. Toad will now dance and he will be wonderful, said the voice. Frog, can you be as wonderful as this, said Toad, as he danced all over the stage? There was no answer. Toad looked out into the theater. Frog was so small that he could not be seen or heard. Frog, said Toad, where are you? There was still no answer. Frog, what have I done, cried Toad. Then the voice said, The greatest toad will now... Shut up, screamed toad. Frog, frog, where have you gone? Toad was spinning in the dark. Come back, frog, he shouted. I'm right here, said frog. Frog was standing near toad's bed. Wake up, toad, he said. Frog, is that really you, said toad. Of course it is me, said frog. And are you your own right size, asked toad. Yes, I think so, said Frog. Toad looked at the sunshine coming through the window. Frog, he said, I'm so glad that you came over. I always do, said Frog. Then Frog and Toad ate a big breakfast. And after that, they spent a fine long day together. We live in a culture that is extremely individualistic right? We, we, even in America, we have something called the Declaration of Independence. Independence. We love to be independent. We don't want anybody depending on us. We don't want to depend on anybody else. We, we want to go our own way, do our own thing, have our own freedoms, and we insist on that. And if anybody encroaches on that, we get very upset and concerned, right? What we maybe don't understand because we've always lived in this individualistic culture is that we're the exception, not the rule. All throughout most of the world, even today, and certainly over um, uh, the eons of the past, cultures are primarily group cultures, right? Most cultures think of themselves as part of their group first and as individuals second. In the West, we think of ourselves as individuals first and maybe part of a group second. But what we need to understand is that the Bible is not a Western book. It's an Eastern book. It's written from a perspective of an Eastern thinker. It's written for uh, uh, and describing cultures of the East. And in those cultures, it's just a given that being a part of a community is more important than being an individual, that what's best for the community is more important than what's best for the individual. That's how it's taken, right? So and when I preach uh, a passage like I'm going to be preaching today, I have to explain all of that in the West, but if I was preaching in Asia or if I was preaching in Africa today, I certainly wouldn't have to explain any of that. That's a given. Group comes first. And so um, we're going to see that our story is not just our story. All people are made in the image of God. We've seen that in the book of Genesis. All of us are significant. All of us are important. And each of us has a responsibility to watch out for the rest of us, if you will. And we're going to see that illustrated today in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 18, first book of the Old Testament, right at the beginning there. You go to Genesis 18, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, let me just start reading, and you follow along, we're going to um, introduce it here with the first few verses. Verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Let's stop there for just a second. I want you to get the picture. Abraham lives in a tent. He's got his tent all set up. He's sitting out in front of his tent on his nice little folding lounge chair. He's got an iced tea in his hand. He's just enjoying the morning. When he looks up and he sees three men coming his way. But immediately he recognizes that these are not just three strangers. These are different kind of men. Now what I want you to notice is both in verse 1 and then later in verse 3, we see the word Lord appearing. Verse 1, now the Lord appeared to him. And verse 3, and he said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight. These three men, one of them is the Lord. Now, you say, well, why is it described as three men? One of the things that um, you'll see when there are these manifestations of God in the Old Testament is that sometimes uh, it will be an angelic sort of a being Say when we'll say an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, for example, Uh, or it could be like some manifestation, like the burning bush to Moses. But more often than not, it is in human form. But I want you to know, and if you, if you, um, some of you may already know this, but when you look in your English Bible where it says, "Now the Lord appeared to him" in chapter chapter eighteen, verse one. The word Lord is all capital letters, right? It's a large capital L and then a smaller capital O-R-D. Whenever you see the word Lord in your Bible in all caps, it is the English translation of the name of God. It's Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever the correct pronunciation. We don't know the correct pronunciation of the name of God in Hebrew because when God gave his name, his name was considered so holy by his followers that they were forbidden to even write it down. So whenever they want to mention the name of the Lord, and we see this in Scripture, you just get these three consonants without any vowels. And then it's left up to the translator to fill in the vowels. So we get the name Jehovah, perhaps, or Yahweh, perhaps, but it's those three letters. And really when they're pronouncing it, they just call it the name because the name is so holy that it shall not be spoken by the likes of you and me. So what we have here is the name of God it's not just that when he's calling him Lord, he's not calling him Lord the way that Sarah calls Abraham Lord, or the way that a uh, the, that handmaid calls her uh, the the head of the household Lord. This is the name of God. So God Himself is appearing to Abraham here. Now this is interesting because there's two other men, and we find out later that they're angels. So we have God and two angels looking like men approaching Abraham and Abraham uh, engages them. And this is not new to Abraham. Chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12, Uh, He never heard of God, and God appears to him and calls him. He begins to follow God, right? And then we get to uh, chapter 13, after uh, Lot chooses to go down to the valley of Sodom, and uh, Abraham is looking at the rest of the land, God appears to him again and says, I'm going to give you all this land anyway, don't worry about it. And then in chapter 15, uh, there's that whole um, vision that he gives him where God appears to him and enters into a covenant with him and tells him he's going to have have a son from his own loins chapter 17 he gets a new name and uh, the covenant of circumcision and God appears to him in that context as well and here we're seeing in chapter 18 where the birth of Isaac is promised with some detail all of these are these appearances where God is appearing and talking to Abraham wouldn't you love it if God would just deal with us this way wouldn't you love to just talk to God face to- face so you don't get confused and you understand what He's saying and all that kind of stuff? Listen, I want to tell you something. I don't know if we think of this often enough. We read this. Do you realize now that it has been decades that we've been following Abraham's life, and there have been these five times when God has shown up. You know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our access to God is total access at all times. There is never a time when you have to wait and say, "Boy, I sure hope God comes by because I really need to talk to him. I sure hope God comes by because I really need some provision. I sure hope God comes by because I really need some wisdom." No, God is available to us at all times. So Abram's having this appearance and this is a part of his journey with God. Harder for him than it was for us, than it is for us. And there's this principle exemplified in the life of Abraham that I don't want us to miss. And the principle is this, our journey with God, our journey of faith is experienced one step at a time, one step at a time. I'm a big picture person. If I'm going to go somewhere, if I'm going to set out on a road trip, I want to map the whole thing out. I want to know where I'm going, what roads I'm taking, which places I'm stopping, when I'm going to stop, you know where the gas stations are, where the hotels are. I want to know all of that. Let's say I'm, I'm headed from here up to San Francisco, and I'm going to just take the five freeway. I want to know which freeway I'm going to stay on and how long I'm going to stay on that freeway, and, and I want to know all of those details. But that's not how we do it anymore, because all of us have a little person who lives in our pockets now who tells us where to go, right? This is particularly helpful for people who don't have a wife. So, you know, we have this GPS and it tells us when to turn, where to turn, you know, what lane to get in, what freeway to be on, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times it drives me crazy because I don't trust it. I'm going, I'm heading for San Francisco and it says, you know, in one mile, exit Main Street. And I'm like... I'm five hours from the city. What do you mean, exit? I'm not exiting. What are you, stupid? So I don't get off. And then I run into the construction zone. Right? And I spend two hours stuck in traffic when if I had just gone around like the little lady in my pocket told me to, then I would have been just fine. My wife will tell you that the big lady in the chair next to me is just as good. um, And I should listen to her more too. Um, But... If, if God, wouldn't you love it if God gave us the whole picture? But if he did, we wouldn't love it. In fact, I'm guessing that if he gave you your whole life's journey with him right up front on the day that you were hearing the gospel and it's like, am I going to be a follower of Jesus? And he goes, well, let me show you this movie. This is what it will be like. We would have all said, No way. We, because we wouldn't have even been able to understand why he would be taking us to the places he's taking us and putting us through the things he's putting us through and why we have to go through all of that kind of stuff. But God gives us callings and promises and communications as we walk with him. During the journey, he shows us where we're going and he trains us to learn to listen to him, to recognize his voice. Let me kind of help you to understand this, because you can't take step two until you've taken step one with God. That's how it works. And you can't take step three until you've taken step two and so forth. He doesn't give you the whole picture all at once. When, when back, go back to the mid-1980s, there was a group of Christians down in Orange County who had this stirring from the Lord that God wanted to plant a church in a new suburban area. There was, a, there was a lot of construction going on in the mid-80s. They were building homes, suburban homes, out to the east of Los Angeles, further and further east, remember, right? And all of these freeways were opening up, and there was these bedroom communities opening up everywhere, and there was a new town going in called Diamond Bar, right, where the 57 and 60 meet, right? And they were building all these houses there, and there were no churches there. And this group in Orange County got this sense that God wanted to plant a church in that area, so they made it an issue of prayer. They began to take some steps. Um, They called a pastor to to be the uh, founding pastor of that church. They put a team together, and they rented a school auditorium, and they started having worship services on Sunday mornings, and they were planting this church. And that went on for about three years, and this little church is getting some traction and starting to grow uh, when the senior pastor uh, moved to Idaho and that only had this young, wet-behind-the-ears guy who didn't know what he was doing to lead the church. And so I became the pastor. And my first year, a year into my ministry there, not even sure if God was going to keep this church alive, we get this opportunity to buy... A church property, just like three miles from where we were meeting, and it was perfect for us. It was there was the people that we cared about and the neighborhoods we'd been reaching out to already. It was an already existing church facility. It was just perfect for us, but we didn't have any money at all. So we just prayed. And God miraculously provided huge amounts of money were likes of which we had never seen before in ways that only God can provide. You know those times where God does something and there is no way you can miss that it's God? This was one of those times. All the people in our church began to get this excitement about that neighborhood and that community and what we were going to do to reach that community. And God brought in all the money and we purchased the property and we moved over there. And the same year that we started in the city of Roland Heights, right next to Diamond Bar, the same year that we started, another thing happened in the religious community. Uh, the largest Buddhist temple this side of the Mississippi was opened in Hacienda Heights right down the street from where we were. And what that meant was that for Buddhists, uh, everything within a five-mile radius of that temple became Buddhist holy ground. So what happened was, uh, Buddhist people, primarily Asian people, in this case Chinese and Korean people, mostly living in L.A., started buying up all the houses in Hacienda Heights and Roland Heights, If you go there now, it's a completely Korean and Chinese community, almost exclusively. Um, And that's where we were. And most of the people that moved into our community were first generation people, did not speak English, their culture was not American, and we said, well, God put us here. We know God put us here. Let's go reach these people. We started going door to door. We couldn't even say hello. People didn't have the same language. They wouldn't come to our programs. We couldn't. We were not making any progress. The, the people in our church who lived in the area were selling their houses because the market had gone like this for the houses. They were selling the houses and moving out to the further into the east and we're losing people, and the church is shrinking, and we're not effectively reaching our community in any way, shape, or form, and we were just blown away what in the world is going on? We know that you gave us the money for this, God. We know you gave us the vision. We know you gave us a heart to reach this community. And we couldn't care less what the race is or what the gender is or what the age is or what the culture is. We want to reach this community for Christ. And so we didn't know how to do it. We started praying and praying and praying. And the Lord gave us some vision and began to open up our eyes to the fact that probably the best way to reach the people living in that community would be if we would plant a Korean church and plant the Chinese church. So that's what we did. We turned most of our time and effort and resources to planting a Korean ministry and a Chinese ministry. Um, And then within a few years, if you want to know the rest of the story, you have to come to the meeting this afternoon. I'll tell you the rest of the story in the meeting this afternoon. But suffice it to say this, that now on that corner in Roland Heights, there is a Korean church of 1,000 people reaching that community. And across the street is a Chinese church of another 1,000 people reaching that community. That community is being blanketed with the gospel and, and transformed because of the work of Jesus Christ. We never knew that was going to happen. Oh, and meanwhile, he moved a bunch of us up here to Duarte to start a church here. And Duarte uh, and this area is also being touched deeply because of that. Now, we never knew. We had no idea what God was doing. And if he had showed us the plan all along, we would have never signed on. We would have never understood. But step by step, he revealed himself. And step by step, he used us to change the world. But this is the way God works in the lives of individuals as well as churches. He calls us. He gives us a sense of purpose and mission. Then he reveals the details and provides the resources as we walk in obedience. But if you haven't done the last thing he told you to do, don't expect him to reveal the next thing. Now listen, I am thankful that Abraham messed up as often as he did. Because it helps me relate to him and and it tells me that I don't have to be perfect in order to walk my journey uh, journey of faith with God. But um, there's always this picture in Abraham's life when he gets off track that he repents and he returns to what God has called him to. And I think sometimes we miss this because I think a lot of us are missing God's plan for our future. Because we are refusing to let him deal with us in our present. Okay, let me tell you what I mean by that. I get to do weddings all the time because that's part of my role as a pastor. And people come to me and they say, hey, we're going to get married and we want you to do the wedding. And I always say, listen, I'd love to do that if I'm available. Uh, and, uh, but only if you'll agree to extensive premarital counseling. So we sit down and start doing premarital counseling, and I get to know the couple and learn more about the details of their relationship and how it's working. And I'm telling you, as the years have gone by, this has become more and more the common thing, and it won't surprise any of you, that that even among Christians, most of the couples that I sit down with who are ready to get married are already sleeping together. They're already sleeping together. A lot of them are already living together. Uh, Some of them own houses together, right? Right? And they're saying, we want God's blessing on our marriage. We want you to guide us in this. And you go, "Um, okay, maybe what we need to do is slow the train down, back it up, and get back on track, right? We want to have this great marriage. We want to have great trust for one another. We want to build a great family. We want to have a great sex life. We want to do all of that stuff. And I say, well, maybe what we need to do is start where we're at, and get our sexual purity in line now. And so sometimes what that means, and this has meant this for multiple couples, sometimes what that means is, you know what? Somebody's moving back in with mom until the wedding. Sometimes what it means is, somebody's moving to a bedroom on the other side of the house because we can't afford to live separately. Or sometimes it just means a, a, a new covenant between a couple to glorify God in their bodies. But whatever the point is this, there's so many people who want this great marriage, but they're not being faithful with the relationship God has already given them. We need to understand, it's just an example, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about our sex lives or our finances or uh, our behaviors, whatever the case is, if God is working in your life, he's not going to show you the next step until you take the step you're on. That's just how it works. God would love to give you the next step in your journey, but he might be waiting for you to take the current step. And Abraham understood the what of God's plan. I'm going to make you a great nation. He understood that. But he had a problem with the when and how, right? It kept not happening. And so he wanted to take matters into his own hands and he did it in a way that was totally different than what God had in mind. And the result of that was Ishmael. Some of us have gotten way off track in our walks with God, and the thing for us to do is to go back to where we got off track and get back in line with God, start living the way that we know He's called us to live, because He's not going to reveal step five until you've dealt with step four. Proverbs chapter four, verse 18 talks about this. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. It's just a beautiful picture, a word picture. So, so just picture the sun just starting to peak over the horizon. The, the sky is just beginning to lighten a little bit at 5.30 in the morning, and you're beginning to see this happen. And as the sun comes up, the day gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And when that sun is directly overhead, it is the full day's brightness, Right. And he's saying that as we walk with God, he gives us a little bit of light to start our journey. And as we walk in that journey, he's going to give us more light. Psalm 119 verse 105 says in another way, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I talk about this verse a lot. I just love this verse because You gotta remember what he's talking about and who he's talking to when he writes this. These are people who don't have uh, flashlights in their cell phones. These, These are people who if they wanna go out and walk at night, there are no street lights on their streets. These are people who if they wanna go out at night and walk, they have to bring a candle or a lantern, right? And they're gonna hold that out in front of them and it's gonna put light down onto their path right in front of them And as they walk, the light moves forward. And with each step, the light moves forward a little bit more. And you walk in the light that is provided. But it remains dark out there. But as you walk, it gets brighter for every step. God says, I will provide you the light you need. But you got to trust me with the light you have. That's how it works. And I haven't seen it work another way. Do you want your future to be in God's will? Then walk by the light he's already given you. Okay, back to Genesis 18. You thought I forgot, huh? Genesis 18, um, pick it up in verse 3. He said, "'My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, "'please do not pass your servant by. "'Please let a little water be brought "'and wash your feet, "'and rest yourselves under the tree.'" And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour and knead it and make bread cakes. How how many of you ladies would love to have your husband rush in and go, hey, bake three loaves of bread in the next five minutes, go. Probably wouldn't work so well here. But anyway, verse 7. Abraham also ran uh, to the herd, took uh, a tender and choice calf, gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, "I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son." And Sarah was standing at the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age; Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "After I have become old, shall I have pleasure my lord being old also?" And the Lord said to Abraham, "Why did Sarah laugh, saying, 'Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old?' Is anything too difficult for the Lord?" At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) Once again, God has given him information a little more than the light he gave him before. With each one of these visits, there's a little bit more light given to him because he's walking in the light he's been given. Uh, and this time he says, is gonna bear a son and I'm telling you when it's gonna happen. She'll be pregnant anytime now. By this time next year, she'll have her son. <clears throat> now, he told Abraham this in the previous chapter and Abraham laughed. This time he tells Sarah and now Sarah laughs. Why are these people laughing? It's not that Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God. Their lives proved that they trusted God. But they just couldn't imagine how this was gonna happen. Listen, if you told Christy and me that we're going to have a kid next year, we would laugh too. And then I would rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? It's not that Abraham and Sarah have no faith. It's that, it's that their faith is not fully matured and they don't understand. Verse 15 cracks me up. She says, I didn't laugh. Why do we lie to God? <laughs> and it's not like none of us can relate to this. Why do we hide from God? Why do we pretend with God, right? First of all, he knows everything. And secondly, he is for us, not against us. Why do we lie and hide from God? Verse 16, <clears throat> then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off there's that city again. We've heard about this city before in Genesis, a city called Sodom. It is known for its wickedness. In fact, to this day, the city of Sodom is generally understood throughout all of human history to be the most wicked city that ever was, right? It's the poster child of wickedness. And we also know about somebody who lives in that city, right? Who lives in Sodom? Lot, the nephew of Abraham, that they were traveling together before, right? And Lot, we know, he set up his tents near the city so he could do business. And then he moved into the city. And we're about to find out in the coming chapters that he is now a city councilman in the city of Sodom. He has become central, a central figure in the most wicked city that there is. Verse 17, "'The Lord said, "'Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, "'since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, "'and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? "'For I have chosen him so that he may command his children "'and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord "'by doing righteousness and justice, "'so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. "'And the Lord said, "'The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, "'and their sin is exceedingly grave.' I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to their outcry, uh, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Okay, this is a kind of a weird passage, a little bit confusing. First of all, let me give you a $10 word. Uh, What we're running into here is something called an anthropomorphism, right? An anthropomorphism is when something that is not human is treated in literature or in a story as human. So if you say, the tree spread its arms toward the sun, that's anthropomorphism, right? When God talks about himself as if he were a man, that is anthropomorphism. And this this is common in the writings of Moses. So God is speaking as if he was a man. He's saying, their outcry has come, so I need to go find out how bad things really are. Does God need to find out? No, God never needs to find out anything. God is all-knowing. He can't learn anything right? So he doesn't really need to find out. He's not really waiting to find out, but he has brought these angels with him for destruction, okay? And he's starting to tell uh, Abraham about this. God knows what's going on in Sodom. He knows what the city is like, And we know about the sexual perversion of Sodom, but sexual perversion was just the tip of the iceberg. Everything in Sodom was just completely backwards and godless. It was a completely godless society. And God knew that. And you know who else knew that? Abraham. Abraham knew, and he knew that Lot was living there in the city of Sodom. So he jumps in and intervenes here, and he talks to God. Verse 22, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. "'Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, "'I will not destroy it if I find 45 there.'" Verse 29, "'He spoke to him yet again and said, "'Suppose 40 are found there.'" And he said, "'I will not do it on account of the 40.'" Then he said, "'Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak.'" Suppose there are 30 found there. And he said, "'I will not do it if I find 30 there.'" And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, by the way, if you ever need anybody to go with you to buy a used car, Abraham. (laughs) Then he said, verse 32, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. This, my friends, for us, is a lesson in prayer. Abraham's conversation with God is simply prayer. We think of prayer as if I bow my heads and close my eyes and fold my hands and if I begin with dear Lord and I end with in Jesus' name, amen, that's prayer. But prayer is simply prayer. Talking to God or asking of God, right? And that's all he's doing. This is a picture of prayer. Now, let me ask you this. What would you have done if you were Abraham? You know that Sodom is a wicked city. You know that God is a just God. You know that a just God eventually has to judge sin, right? What would you do? Or let me ask it this way. What do you do now, when you think about the culture that we currently live in? When you turn on the news and you see stories that just turn your stomach every night, when you you go on social media and you just see all kinds of garbage on there, when you look at just the culture in general and the direction that we're going as a culture. When you think about our leadership in this country and you, you like this one and hate that one and you love that one and hate this one or maybe you don't trust any of them or whatever, when you look at the leadership and it you're troubled, what do you do? When you see the hatred, the violence, the perversion, all this stuff, what do you do? Do you, do you make your point on social media since that always convinces people? Do do you complain to other believers about how this world's going to hell in a handbasket and we should just hang out at the church where we can keep our kids away from all this stuff? Do you judge people and label them based on what you see? Abraham knew that Sodom was wicked and he knew they deserved judgment and now he knew they were about to get it. So what did he do? He prayed for the wicked people. And God listened. He asked God for mercy. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, no, 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 he he was concerned about his family members. He was concerned about Lot and Lot's family. Actually, no. There's not a word in this about Lot and his family. Never once does God ask him to deliver Lot and his family. uh, Does Abraham ask God to deliver Lot and his family? Instead, he asked him to deliver the city. Don't judge the city. If we could just find any righteous people, and by the way, the word righteous here is easily misunderstood. Nobody is righteous except God. That's what Jesus said, right? Nobody is fully righteous except for God. When he's talking about righteousness here, it's the context of Genesis that tells us what he means. Remember just a few chapters ago, it said that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith, he, he's talking about people of faith, if there's there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 20, if there's 10, people of faith, you know, God followers in this city, would you please spare the wicked people? He knows God doesn't judge the righteous. He's asking God not to judge the wicked. And he boldly kept asking God to show even greater and greater mercy to these wicked, perverse, sinful people. Now, I'm not sure there's anything for us to learn about how to pray from this. I've seen some stuff on this where people are saying, oh, this is a strategy for prayer. I just don't see it. First of all, he's not bargaining with God. What does he have to bargain with? He's not offering God anything. Secondly, he's not trying to manipulate God. He keeps saying over and over that he knows how great God is and that he's just ashes and dust, right? He, he knows he's not going to get one over on God. He's not trying to, uh, you know, force God into a corner where he has to do something he doesn't want to do. Um, so I don't think there's a lesson for us here on how to get God to do what you want. But it is an example of persistent, passionate, committed prayer on behalf of other people. He keeps asking God for mercy for the people of Sodom. Now, you already know the end of the story with Sodom, right? You don't have to be a churchgoer to know that Sodom ends up judged. They get wiped off the face of the earth. And you already know the end of the story. But I think that Abraham, from his point of view, really believed there had to be 10 righteous people in Sodom. I mean, there's there's Lot and his wife and they have kids and their kids have spouses and fiancés. If you just add that up, you got 10 right there. But here we're talking about God's judgment on a city and a man standing in the gap between God and people who everyone would agree deserve to be judged. So, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 12 tells us that that righteousness which comes by faith makes a difference when God's listening. 1 Peter 3:12 For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears attend to their prayers. Again, righteous is not perfect, righteous is not sinless, righteous in this context is faithful, people of faith. James 5:16, which is one of my favorite verses, says this, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. When you're praying as a person of faith who's in a relationship with God and you pray for an effect, it's amazing what God will do in response to those prayers. So, does that mean that when real believers pray, God always gives us what we ask? Nope. But it does mean he hears our prayers. Not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, which he's counted to our account. Let me illustrate it this way. When you're a parent and you have little kids, it's actually true when they're older too, I'm finding out. But when your kids are little, they come to you for everything. It's always, Daddy, can I have, Daddy, can I have, Daddy, you know, Daddy, can I have a cookie? Daddy, can I have a, a panda bear? Daddy, can I have a airplane (laughs) you know daddy could have a baby sister they come to you and 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 they ask for a lot of stuff right and you know what parents listen because there are children it's the relationship that gives them the platform to ask in the first place now a good parent is not always going to say yes Sometimes they're going to say no, sometimes they're going to say you have to wait or whatever the the situation may be. But, But just by virtue of being the son or the daughter, this child has a right to come to the parents and ask for what they want. And then it's up to the parents to give them what they need. I'm not telling you that if you ask loudly enough and often enough, God will give you what you want. But I will tell you this, if you're a follower of Jesus... God will give you an audience. He will listen to your prayer. And if you're his child by faith, he will act according to his will in response to your prayer. So what was God's will concerning Sodom? We know that he was planning to go down and wipe them out. What was God's will concerning Sodom? Interesting. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 tells us that God does not desire that any should perish but for all to come to repentance. That's God's will. Ezekiel puts it even better. In Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Ezekiel says, I take no pleasure, this is God speaking, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked return from his way and live. That's what pleases God. God is, is not pleased when someone who is wicked is destroyed. God is pleased when someone who is wicked receives forgiveness. Now it does honor God when wickedness is punished. And there's going to come a time when all wickedness is going to be punished and it is going to glorify God because it gives a contrast between the holiness of God and it tells you what He deserves. He deserves to be worshipped. But He doesn't take pleasure when people suffer even as a result of their own sin. God apparently cared cared more about the people of Sodom than Lot did. He, he's, he cared more about the people of Sodom than Abraham did, and Abraham was fighting for them, right? And, and let me just tell you something. God cares more about the people of Los Angeles than you do. God cares more about the people of Duarte than you do. God cares more about the people in Washington, D.C., or Las Vegas, or San Francisco, or you name the place that is known for its sin, more than we do. We should be praying for their salvation and shining the light of Christ so that people will see Him. So let me just close with this. I want to ask you, what do you pray for? Or better yet, who do you pray for? Who do you pray for living in this world? You pray for your family? You pray for your friends? You pray for the church prayer sheet that comes out every week and and you want to see God answer prayers for these people? I hope you pray for all of them. But let me ask you this, when was the last time you prayed for criminals? When was the last time you prayed for people who were sitting in prison because they deserve to be there, not even the innocent ones? When was the last time you prayed for gangbangers who were taking over the inner cities and, and, and causing all kinds of havoc? When was the last time you prayed for a child molester after reading the story about some teacher who molested children and you, you get sick to your stomach and maybe if you're a person of prayer, you stop and you pray for that child, don't you? Do you pray for the molester? When was the last time you prayed for your noisy neighbors? <laughs> you're awake at two in the morning anyway. You might as well pray. When was the last time you prayed for the other political party who keeps posting stuff on the internet? When was the last time you're driving down the street and you see two of those nice young men in the white shirts and the skinny ties on their bicycles heading this way? When was the last time you prayed for them? See, God cares about everyone and we're a part of the group. And it is our responsibility to pray for them. I got to tell you, this Christmas, just this Christmas that just passed, I received probably the greatest gift I've ever received other than my salvation. My uh, eldest daughter and my son-in-law took on a project and they created this for me. It's a desk calendar it has every day of the year on it. And on every one of these days, there are names listed these are people who have committed to pray and fast for me on the day that they are on the calendar. Is that incredible? It's the greatest thing I've ever received. That 365 days, there's four or five names on every one of these days of people who have said, "I'm going to devote time to praying for Pastor Doug. And and it's the most awesome thing because now it sits on my desk and I sit down at my desk and I look at the date and then I look at and and who's praying for me today and that's my list of people I'm praying for today, and 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 I'm starting to get texts and phone calls and emails from people saying hey today's my day I'm praying for you is there anything I could pray for today is there anything you need I want you to know that that God has put you on my heart and I'm praying for you today I'm gonna tell you what. I I don't remember the last time something encouraged my own walk with God so much as getting a text or an email from somebody saying, I want you to know, I'm praying today that you will overcome temptation. I am praying today that you will have joy even in hard times. I'm praying today that God will give you peace. And then my day starts to get crazy and I stop and go, hey, there's people praying for me. It's awesome. Who are you praying for? You could pray for me. I'll take it. Um, but, But ask yourself this question. Who should you be praying for? Who should you be reaching out to? Who should you be serving? I challenge you to take a step to begin to pray for someone who doesn't make your heart feel warm and fuzzy. And as you begin to pray for them, I wonder if God won't just do something in their lives in response to your prayer, that will change the world. We need to step up and pray because we're all in this together. Let's stand and pray right now. Father, as we think about your goodness and your faithfulness, and we think about some of the turmoil and the, and the sin and the pain and the destruction that we see around us, It can be disheartening and discouraging, but thank you for Abraham's reminder that within our grasp is an opportunity to be a part of a world-changing movement. Help us, God, to become people of prayer, not just people who pray once in a while, but people of prayer. Help us to become marked as the people who pray, not just for the ones that we love and like and are close to, but even the ones we don't like, don't love, and are far from. Help us to be people, Father, that care desperately about each and every human being because they deserve it because they're made in your image. Father, we ask that you would start a movement right here and roll through this community and through all of Southern California and the cities of our country and that you would touch lives that desperately need to be touched. Remind us, God, to pray. And help us to be faithful to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.